Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Run Wild with Lauren and Bud. It's been a while. We're trying to get this podcast back up and running. We've recorded quite a few episodes that just haven't aired yet. Um, We actually recorded today's episode uh, back during the summer, um, and it is regarding mountaineering. So today I sit down and Bud interviews me all about my mountaineering trip on Mount Shasta in California. Um, It was an amazing experience and I really go through the process of how I trained, the trip itself, um, and why I think it's such a great sport to incorporate with ultra running and kind of how I set it up during my year of training for races and climbing mountains. So join us to learn all about mountaineering. If you've ever thought about mountaineering or you're looking to do your first trip, there's lots of great info here for you. Um, Talking just about all of the minor details and the ins and outs of training and what gear is needed. So I hope you enjoy it and learn something new today. And as always, feel free to send us some questions if you have them. Uh, But without further ado, let's do this episode on mountaineering and Mount Shasta. Hey, Lauren. Hey, bud. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Say, uh, we've got some real important stuff to talk about. Do we? Yeah. Yeah, we got a special guest, special guest tonight. Ah, who's our special guest, bud? Uh, her name is Lauren. Oh, that's funny. My name's Lauren (laughs) as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Lauren just did something pretty big. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. (laughs) Yeah. So the guest is me. Instead of being host or co-host, I am the guest today. Uh, Yay. Feeling pretty special to be a guest on Run Wild with Lauren and Bud. (laughs) Well, you did something pretty big. And so I want to talk about it. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, basically, I've scripted out most everything. And so (laughs) as I ask you questions, yeah, I'd like for you to answer them and stick to the script. Okay, <laughs> because I'll try my best. chances are something else you want to say is coming later. Okay, I'll do my best, bud. Okay, so would you like to tell us where you went? Sure. So I just got back from a trip to Mount Shasta, which is in Colorado. Uh, it's a mountain at the end, the very southern end. Oh, hold on. Oh, okay. <laughs> Where where's Mount Shasta? California. Okay. That's all I'm allowed to say right now. <laughs> no, no, you, you. I'm sorry, you said Colorado. Did I say Colorado? Oh my god. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking mountains in my brain. So Mount Shasta, California. I always want to say Colorado because I'm used to going the mountains out in Colorado. It is actually in California, uh, and it is at the southern tip of the Cascade Mountain Range. Uh, It's kind of like defines the lower end there. Um, And it is in Northern California near the Oregon border is where I went this past weekend. Yeah. Awesome. I have some uh, factoids about Mount Shasta. All right. Let's hear them, Mr. Factoid man. Okay. So the, it's a volcano, you know, right. And it's a, it's a potentially active. Okay. And 
you know, in a geological time span, Mount Shasta is actually very active, you know, uh, but in the history that we've inhabited the United States, it's not very active. Um, so it may erupt every several thousand years, which is actually fairly, you know, often. Uh, it has an elevation of 14,179 feet and is considered a 14er. And so I want to give the definition of that so people may not know what that is. So there are uh, a lot of mountains in the Rocky Mountain Range, all of them west of the Mississippi, of course. There's 96 14ers in the United States. Okay. And so that's any mountain that's over 14,000 feet. And there's plenty of locations that are higher or, or there's there's uh, more than 96 peaks, okay? But they're not considered individual peaks because they don't have more than 300 feet of prominence over the surrounding area. Mm. So uh, you have, in order for it to be a mountain peak, it has to be over 300 feet uh, different from the surrounding areas. So there's many ridges that are not considered peaks or summits mm -hmm. and uh the highest ones of course are in alaska and yeah. so you get up in denali or, or mount mckinley and they're up there twenty thousand plus right they're really 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 high um there are 53 14ers in colorado mm -hmm. and so that's quite a few that's why uh everyone thinks of colorado um let's skip over more of that 14 business and get back to Mount Shasta. Uh, the surface of Mount Shasta is relatively free of deep glacial erosion, except paradoxically for its south side, where Sargent's Ridge runs parallel to the U-shaped Avalanche Gulch. And I believe you spent time going up the Avalanche Gulch yeah. side of it, correct? Yeah, we did. Mm -hmm. Awesome. There's seven named glaciers on Mount Shasta. Ooh. So do you want to tell us what a glacier is? It's it's ice. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, it's not just ice, but it's almost like a uh, permanent ice. Right. It's like, not going to melt out in the summertime. Stay right. year round. It's actually kind of, you can think of it as part of the mountain. So if you're climbing that route, that you know, goes over the glacier, you are climbing the glacier. It is in essence a part of the mountain. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of folklore surrounding Mount Shasta. Oh yeah. Um, and I don't know that I want to get into all of it here, but um, a few of the things I'd like to talk about. Um, some of the, the Native Americans believe that Mount Shasta was the center of the universe and it was also where uh, God lived and there was several tribes of Native Americans that were basically bisected by Mount Shasta and so they were all surrounding it and all had kind of the same vision of it yeah yeah absolutely uh it and it still is regarded as like kind of a holy sacred place mm -hmm. um yeah yeah there's a lot of kind of folklore that goes with it some mythology but yeah it it, it was um in native american culture a very sacred and important place still is 
Um, and then over, you know, the last hundred years, as people have been climbing it, there's, yeah, lots of kind of stories have developed about um, mm-hmm. some mystical powers and beings and all kinds of things. Yeah. So why don't you tell us what mountaineering is? What yeah. is that? So, you know, a lot of people, I think, are confused about what's the difference between hiking up a mountain, running up a mountain and true mountaineering. Um, And so for this case, it was a true mountaineering trip. It's, um, you know, involved snow travel. So we had crampons on our feet. There's no way you could do this without crampons. Uh, And so what what are crampons, Lauren? Brand new word for the audience. Metal claws that you strap on to your mountaineering boots. Again, you can't wear tennis shoes or regular hiking boots. You got to have mountaineering boots. Uh, that the crampons fit tightly onto. Um, And so this kind of really separates just going for a hike, going for a run. You know, us runners and hikers will sometimes put those yak tracks on to give us a little traction in the snow and ice. Crampons are like an extreme version of that. So they're these gigantic claws that will grip ice and snow and keep you on the side of the mountain. Uh, So there's some technique there that you got to learn. But yeah, so, so, differentiating between just hiking up, running up a mountain versus true mountaineering. Mountaineering, you've got crampons on, you've got special boots, you've got an ice axe, you know, that is part of your kind of tool, standard tools uh, that you must have and able to safely navigate the snow and ice and the steepness uh, of, of the mountain. And so mountaineering really is kind of a different sport, requires a different skill set. You have to be prepared. Uh, with certain um, things like the crampons and ice axe for your safety. And so, you know, um, if you if you're doing something like Mount Shasta, you either need to understand how to use that gear and have practice with it. You need to know how to self-arrest using your axe, uh, proper ways to fit crampons and use them. There's different techniques. So what is what does self-arrest mean? Stopping yourself, arresting or stopping yourself from falling down the mountain. Uh, your ice axe is there as because a Because it's very, very steep. Yeah. And you could fall. Okay. Right. And there's some times when you need to actually, actually do technical climbing with your axe. Uh, a lot of times you're using your axe almost, you can think of it almost as like a trekking pole. Other times you'll need to use your axe actually uh, to help you climb up. And I can talk about that. And so, like, to climb Mount Shasta, like what I was saying, you either need to understand and know how to use this gear, or you're going to need a guide who can teach you these things and, and safely lead you up. This is a mountain that people die on. There's many rescues per year. You know, in, anything in mountaineering, um, it's it's the safety thing is a much more danger, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It's not just kind of hiking up a defined path you are going to be traveling on treacherous snow and ice on very steep terrain uh and there may be some technical climbing included in that as well if you're on a glacier there's certain skills you have to learn about traveling along a glacier in crevasses and you know being tied in with ropes there's all kinds of things to it there's all kinds of components um so mountaineering is quite a different beast than just going and hiking up a steep mountain Excellent. Um, Shasta is a glaciated peak, so it stays 
ice and snow year round. And then of course, uh, through the summertime, there may be some snow melt, but it comes fast. Uh, yeah. and it's considered a strato peak. And so it's in the stratosphere, I guess you would say, where the elevation is over 14,000 feet. So you're basically higher than the clouds. Yeah. You are at least three or 4,000 feet higher than most aircraft require pressurized cabins. And mm -hmm. so if you were to fly in an airplane over nine to 10,000 feet, they have, a, they have to have pressurized cabins. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you're basically in an environment where the air is thin. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it feels like to breathe at that elevation? Not yeah, just I, working and, yeah. and hiking, but what does it feel like to just breathe? Right. And so anyone who's been at elevation probably knows what I'm getting ready to say. You know, the, the trailhead starts around 7,000. Camp, we camped around 10,000. And then obviously the peak was over 14,000. So at each different level, it's a little bit different. Uh, you definitely, you know, for the same effort, let's say at sea level, your heart is working harder. There's less oxygen available to transport to your muscles, so your body's working harder. So you do, you feel out of breath. That's usually the first thing as you're climbing up, you know, once you get to like eight, 9,000 feet. You can really tell a difference. You're kind of huffing and puffing more, especially if you're not acclimated. For people who live at elevation, this is probably not the case. They've acclimated if they've lived there for some amount of time. But for those of us, I mean, I live like at a thousand feet. You know, I live in Tennessee. We're not at sea level, but we're also not at high elevation. Uh, you know, our peaks top out in the 6,000 range here in Tennessee. Uh, and so once you get above that, let's say seven, eight, nine, if you're not acclimated to living at that altitude, you'll definitely tell a difference in your effort levels. You'll be huffing and puffing a little bit more. Once you get, you know, even to 10,000 feet and above, you could start feeling effects of altitude if you're not acclimated. Headaches are really common, sometimes nausea. Um, you know, you can get full-blown altitude sickness at starting at 10,000 or higher. Um, and so, yeah, so most people who don't live at altitude will feel some effects, especially by the time you get to 14,000, you'll definitely probably feel like it's just, you know, a little harder to take those deep breaths. You may be huffing and puffing a little bit more than normal. Um, and everybody kind of experiences that in a range, you know, we're on a spectrum of how it affects us, um, given fitness levels, genetic differences, where you live most of the time, those kinds of things. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> would you consider that your regular uh, trail running training and your fitness training really helped on this adventure? Oh, definitely. But the one key to altitude, which is true across all sports, anytime you're dealing with altitude, the number one thing you can do to prepare for altitude is to become as fit as possible. The more fit you are, the more efficient your body is at transporting oxygen to your muscles and the more efficient your, your heart is at pumping this oxygen blood. Uh, and so the more fit you are, the better you are at processing oxygen and working with oxygen in your body. So that translates over to altitude when the oxygen levels may be different. 
so that is the number one thing you can do is get as fit as possible. So if you're fit from trail running, ultra running, whatever it is you do, that definitely is going to serve you well if you're going to be working hard at altitude. Awesome. Uh, what can you share with us about the team that you went up the mountain with? Yeah, great team. It was an all-female team. It was so great. And we were the only all-female team on the mountain that day. Well, it was a two-day trip. Uh, but we were the the only team that was 100% female. So that was a very awesome feeling. Uh, yeah, and so my friend Heather uh, took this job on as being, we called her our fearless leader. Uh, Heather is a friend I made. Some of you guys have known, I guess I can say it on the podcast. I was on this little tiny show called Naked and Afraid <laughs> that has not aired yet. Um, and that's where I met Heather. And she is a world-class mountaineer. She's an expert. She's, you know, done the seven summits and she's climbed for the last, you know, 15 years all over the planet. Uh, I, I trust her with my life. Um, and so she offered to volunteer her time to take a group of ladies up Mount Shasta as kind of like a learning trip. And so um, it was a group of us. There was six total and um, several, everybody else kind of lived out West. I'm the only East um, girl who, who uh, braved the snow and ice. And so, yeah, so we all met up in, um, Mount Shasta, you know, in Shasta and climb this mountain together. And, uh, it was a great trip. It really was. That's good. Um, can you tell us a little bit of how Heather prepped y'all and trained you? Yeah. And so, you know, Heather was great about, um, just, you know, initially providing gear lists, like here's the gear you're going to need. Here's the gear you can rent if you don't want to invest, but here's the things you're going to need. You know, we had to camp on the snow, at 10,000 feet, that's a little different than this Tennessee girl is used to camping, you know. Uh, and so she, you know, she came up with a gear list and, you know, just encouraging us to be able to carry a load. Uh, we knew we were going to be carrying around 30 to 40 pounds on our back. So we trained appropriately kind of over the months to uh, carry that load. Um, yeah. And so she just kind of set some parameters like, hey, here's the gear you're going to need. Uh, here is what weight pack you're going to need to carry. So, you know, build your way up. So we kind of, as a group built our way up training for that. Um, yeah. And so it was great just having kind of that someone who knows exactly what they're doing has been up and down the mountain many times, um, could just kind of pinpoint like, here's what you need and here's what kind of load you're going to have to carry. And then when you were on the mountain, she gave you different skill training, correct? Yeah, it was great. Um, so, you know, the part, the climbing, from the trailhead to camp is about three miles and about 3,000 feet of climbing. Uh, and it's it's pretty non-technical. It's still in snow and ice, but it's nothing uh, too technical. So once we made it to camp for day one, we uh, found a hill and practiced all of our skills on. So we've kind of been watching videos and things leading up to the trip. Uh, but then we got some hands-on lessons on how to self-arrest, how to use our crampons, how to glissade. Uh, how to do all the things we would need to do to stay safe on the mountain. Um, so it was fun because we had plenty of time to practice our skills that we had kind of learned about virtually. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the next day it was the big push to the summit, the really technical, more difficult, more dangerous sections. 
uh, where we got to use our skills. So it was it was a really great uh, beginning kind of mountain when you say, trip. When you say the next day, you're really talking about midnight. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you go to bed early because here's the deal. Uh, this is considered late in the season. So we went, you know, towards the end of June. That's late season for the climbing season really wraps up at the end of June. And the reason it does is because you do get snow melt and that snow and ice is holding all the rock, the loose rock together. Uh, and so when you get that melt, you get lots of loose rock falling down the mountain, which can absolutely take you out. Uh, and so for us to stay safe, we got up around probably about midnight, a little after midnight. Uh, and we left camp. Our goal was to leave by 2 a.m. And the, the whole idea is to get through the danger zone while everything's still frozen. The sun's not out trying to melt ice or anything. Uh, just trying to avoid some of that melt, which will then release rock, which will then you know fly down the mountain and take you out <laughs> if you're not careful. Uh, so, yeah. And it also avoids afternoon storms. So you want to summit early. Anybody who's climbed 14ers in Colorado knows this knows the drill. You know, you try to summit very early in the morning, get off the mountain before any afternoon storms roll in. Um, so those that was the goal. Uh, most teams, that's what they do. You get up in the middle of the night and you you head out uh, by sunrise. We were through the danger zone and, and on our way to the summit. And so being at that altitude, you're in the clouds. And so if a storm comes in, you're inside the storm right it's not yeah. like you're under it you're in it right so, not being on a mountain in a storm with lightning you know is extremely dangerous especially on a big peak um it's it's and, and, the, and the wind oh yeah the winds can get up over 100 miles per hour on shasta so it can be it can turn into quite a dangerous uh situation very quickly yep uh so what kind of food and stuff and provisions did you have so being the trail and ultra runner, I took a lot of trail food that I normally would take. Uh, I took some gels and uh, like some spring energy gels and um, some scratch chews and my salt tablets. So I took a lot of my normal stuff I would take for any endurance thing that I've done. Uh, but then, you know, for dinner and breakfast, I would take dehydrated like backpacking meals because um, they're light, right? They're ultra light. They fit in your pack. Uh, just made life easy. So, so a combination of my ultra food, you know, uh, and, and then some backpacking food. And so being from Tennessee, uh, anytime that let's say you have to go potty, there's a tree yeah. or there's something. Tell us, tell us about this. What's up there? Yeah, so out west is a little different, you know, different regions of the U.S. and different wildlife areas uh, have different rules. And I think most mountains for mountaineering and Shasta included, you have a wag bag. So you there's designated areas at camp to pee, like, you know, you don't want to pee in the snow. Everybody's melting to drink uh, or boiling to drink. Um, and you also are not allowed to leave your poop on the mountain. So you have these bags, which are just paper bags. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, that you, if you need to poop, you have to poop in a bag and pack it out. Uh, and that's just because, you know, you think about it, it's a glaciated peak, it's snow and ice year round. Where's your poop going to go? It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to sit in the snow. Uh, and so, yeah, you got to pack it out. 
So that's always a fun, interesting thing when you're not used to that. <laughs> it's like, that's like what the astronauts have to go through. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. Not the <laughs> funnest thing in the world to have to pack out your poop, but uh, yeah, keeps the mountain clean and uh, yeah, makes it better for everyone. So, so there, I'm sure there's some people who are listening and they're thinking, yeah, I could do this. I could do this. And then they're like, they heard the bathroom part and then they're like, nope. Nope, not yeah. Doing it. And you know, the hard part is, you know, you're on this mountain, there are no trees, <laughs> there are no <laughs> anything there is you're all exposed, you know, there's there's no hiding. Um, so it's a little, it's a little different than than being here in the East Coast. Um, you know, being able to hide behind a tree and, and bury your poop if you want. Um, so yeah, big difference, for sure. Uh, something new. Yeah, for me. <laughs> <laughs> new experience so y'all y'all did have to melt snow so you could uh boil it and cook right yeah and so we started off uh you know we got a big garbage bag and we just filled it up with some clean snow we dug down and, and got some snow and drug it back to camp and so at first we started boiling it um now remember we're packing everything in with these gigantic packs so we're limited on how much fuel we had for our little camp stoves we had three stoves for our group. Um, and so we realized how much fuel it was taking to boil the snow. So then we just decided to stop boiling it. We would just melt it and then treat it with iodine. And so that's what we did the rest of the time, uh, which really made much more sense um, because we were able to conserve our fuel because, you know, it takes a lot of water for everyone, mm -hmm. but we also needed water for our dehydrated food. We needed water for the next day to get to the summit. Uh, so we wouldn't have to stop and boil more water. So yeah, so we just kind of got in the groove of melting snow with our stoves and then treating it with iodine, filling our bottles up that way. Wow. So I, I'd like you to go into depth for me. What kind of gear, just talk, go from head to toe or toe to head, whatever it is, sure. and tell us what is special about this gear. And I know we already touched on crampons. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so let's go over the gear you have to have for climbing Shasta, at least if you're doing the route I did crampons in mountaineering boots, right? Cause the crampons fit the mountaineering boots specifically. You can't just put them on any shoe. So crampons and mountaineering, yeah. mountaineering boots are what's special about them? Well, they're waterproof. They have to be completely waterproof. And then they also have the grooves where your crampons clip into. So, so you have to have mountaineering boots and crampons. And the other piece of gear that's vital um, is the ice axe. And so this ice axe, you know, you've probably seen people climbing mountains with them. Um, it has, it looks like an ice axe on one end. And then on the, the post that you hold has a pointy thing on the bottom uh, that it's like a spike. And so anyways, it's, it's a multi-tool. But so you have your ice axe, you have your crampons and mountaineering boots. Other than that, for this climb, there wasn't a whole lot of more technical gear needed. Obviously, a, a large backpack like you would use for backpacking. For camping, we had four season tents and I had a zero degree bag plus a liner, um, you know, and an inflatable ultralight pad to go under it because you're sleeping on the snow. You know, you're not on ground. You're on the snow uh, and there's wind. It's really super cold. And so uh, I bought a special zero degree bag, sleeping bag. Uh, the ones I use here in Tennessee, even during the winter, are not zero degrees. So I had to spend some 
a few bucks on that. Um, yeah, you know, and then of course waterproof gloves, got to have the, you know, the clothing to, you need some like rain pants, some kind of waterproof pants. You need a waterproof shell because you're going to be glissading or sliding down in the snow, you know, to keep yourself dry or as dry as possible. Um, so yeah, just lots of kind of that, you know, think about gear you would use in the snow, but ultralight because you're carrying it, you're changing, you're, you know, packing it in, packing it out. Um, so yeah, so it, it was just more of that kind of gear, you know, you got to have a helmet. I forgot the helmet. Once you get up past camp where the rock fall is very, um, likely and very dangerous, mm -hmm. you know, we had helmets on in case of a fall or in case of rock tumbling towards us. So a helmet was a climbing helmet, uh, was also necessary headlamps because we're traveling at night. Um, you know, base layers, different layers of clothing, trying to think what else. Lots of sunscreen because the snow reflects light up. I got burned inside my ears. You can get burned inside your nostrils, your lips, you know, all of that. It reflects back up. So you got to keep covered up as much as possible. Um, what else? Yeah, really? I think that's it. We had a shovel. I carried this shovel up. We had a snow shovel so we could dig out our camp. You got to dig out a place to put your tent and all that. Uh, so we did have a shovel. Trying to think what other gear we had. Um, I think that just about gets it. You know, camping stoves, things like that. Um, just kind of your standard backpacking gear. Awesome. So you mentioned a word that was brand new to us, glissading. Mm. What is what is so special about glissading? What does that glissading mean? Glissading is so fun. It's basically sliding down the, the mountain on your butt. You're just sledding, but without a sled. Uh, it's a great way to get down the mountain. There's a lot of glissading paths because you'll see people do that. Some people will ski or snowboard down the mountain. They'll carry their gear. Uh, we glissaded. And so glissading, you just literally using your ice axe as a break and as a self-arrest tool. You just sit on your butt and you, you just slide down the mountain. Remember, it's really steep. It's snowy. Uh, and so you just, luckily, the people who come before you, carve out a path down the mountain with their butt <laughs> and you just get into that trough and you just, it's like sledding, uh, but you go really fast. Um, and so you're using your ice ax as a lever to kind of, as a breaking tool, the pointy end, you've got like a, that spiky end I talked about. Uh, and then if you get out of control, you can roll over and self arrest. Um, so glissading is just sliding down the mountain. Super fun, a little bit scary. Uh, easy to get out of control, but gets you down super quick. So all those hours it took to climb step by step up a mountain, you're just whizzing down. Um, and so that's why you need waterproof clothing. So you can try to stay dry because otherwise you're going to get wet and freezing. Um, but yeah, glissading is super fun. It's like the reward for all of your hard work. You get to slide down the mountain. So I want, I want you to describe for us some of the, uh, exhilaration that you had like when you summited mm -hmm. and the, some of the real hardships that you had yeah you know um i think all of it went really smoothly for me until the very last summit push to get up to the summit the craggy summit part uh we had to do a little bit of ice climbing so we actually had to use, it was so steep, you could no longer, you know, walk up it, so to speak, even using your crampons. 
it was so steep that we actually it turned into ice climbing where you're digging your ice axe in and pulling yourself up, you know, and um, that part I kind of, and you're so close, you can, the summit's like literally right above your head. Um, but that part, I, I might have freaked out just a little bit cause I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know we we're going to have to do that. Uh, and so like kind of in it, that's where I had a great teacher. I had Heather, my guide who kind of came down to climb it with me because I really was, um, just yeah, a little shaky on it. I'd never done anything like that. Uh, I had not practiced it. So it was kind of impromptu. We got to do this. We're in it now and it's getting too steep. We got to, you know, we're gonna have to climb it. Um, and it wasn't far to climb. It was fine. But there was a kind of a moment of panic, like, oh no, I haven't practiced this. And what if I fall? And you know, I had my helmet on and all that. Uh, but it was still a little stressful for me. So that kind of really got my adrenaline going. And then by then I'm at the, you know, as soon as you top that wall, you're at the peak, you're at the summit. Um, and so I was kind of spent, <laughs> but I was so relieved to reach the top. It was just a relief. Um, it was beautiful. We kind of beat the crowds up there. We made good time. We were very consistent in our pace. Um, and we beat like the majority of the big crowds for the day, uh, climbing the mountain. And yeah, it was great. Like finally making it you know, we just trying to get to the summit this whole time. And so making it was just great because we knew going down was going to be a piece of cake. Um, so yeah, it was just great. It was great to finally reach. It's always fun to reach the top, but yeah, this one, because it was such hard work, so much hard work and preparation had gone into reaching the summit. I don't know if you know, there's like a high DNF rate. There's like a 70% DNF rate for climbing this mountain. So just like reaching it is like, whew, did it. <laughs> we conquered it you know so it was a great feeling sorry are you able to tell us about some of the moments where you had a little bit of uh maybe you thought you weren't going to be able to do it yeah you know the, to first, push through? the first night when I got to camp I felt great all day got to camp everything was fine and then right before dinner time all of a sudden I got hit with nausea just kind of out of nowhere like I just started feeling really nauseous like real bad like you know when you're like oh no like I think I'm going to throw up uh it just struck me out of nowhere and you know I had been hydrated pretty well I'd eaten I you know everything was fine so the only thing I could think of it was just me adjusting to the altitude um, and so, you know, I kind of went away from the group and just kind of stood in the snow, in the cold, I think it was really helpful and just kind of reset. And I did, I, I was able to get down a few bites of dinner, not much, uh, and go to bed. I slept pretty good and the nausea passed. And the next day I felt like a million bucks. The whole summit day, I felt like a million bucks. Um, I think I just had a little transition period where I, I really was nervous that I was getting altitude sickness or something was going wrong and I was going to, my body was going to fall apart. Um, but yeah, overcame it. It wasn't, it ended up not being a deal breaker. Uh, I was really worried. I was so scared. I was going to go to bed and wake up even worse the next morning and not be able to summit. Uh, that would be like my nightmare. Um, you know, you don't want to mess around with altitude sickness or if you're sick trying to do a climb like that. So really nervous, but pushed through it and it ended up okay. So do you feel like your experience hitting the wall in other races has helped you? Oh yeah. You know what your when your body's telling you to stop and yeah. your brain has to overcome that. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, even dealing with nausea, like in long ultras, like in hundred milers and things like that, it's kind of like, you know, that you, your body just needs a little time to get settled and recalibrated. Um, so it, it very much treated it like an ultra where it's like, okay, I'm not going to put anything in my stomach. I'm going to take some Pepto. I'm going to just like breathe and not, you know, dwell on it. Let my stomach settle and see what happens. Um, yeah, it was kind of the same thing I would do in an ultra when that, that I've done before. Um, just kind of like expecting, Hey, your body's got a lot going on. Let's let it recalibrate. Um, but yeah, it definitely helps like, you know, doing anything endurance where you've had to push through, I think is helpful. Yeah. And, and you had one of your team members that stayed at base. They did. We did. did so yeah, you know, the, the, the trip, this one is a great trip because it's designed um, to really give people a chance to try climbing this mountain, but with appropriate kind of back out places that are safe. So we had one team member who had just was fighting some really bad Achilles issues, some really bad blisters on the back of their heels. And, you know, if you're mountaineering, you know, the terrain is so steep. It is putting all tremendous stress on your Achilles and, you know, on the back of your feet. So she was having a tough time uh, by the time we made it to camp. And that was the easier section. So we knew the second part of the climb, whereas even steeper and longer, would be really hard on her Achilles and all the issues going on. So she just made the decision to stay back at camp, which is a safe place to be. There's other people around. It's in a safe zone from rockfall and all that. So we did have a team member stay back at camp while we went and summited and then came back to camp later to get her. Um, and that, that was the best, you know, it was a hard decision, I'm sure for her, but it was the best decision because I think she would have really ended up hurting her Achilles worse or, you know, the pain from the blisters alone would have probably been unbearable by the time you get to the top. Um, so unfortunately, you know, I think she was bummed about having to miss the summit, which anyone would be, um, but she also did what was right for her body, which is always a tough call. But yeah, so we did. Okay. And uh, when you guys reached the summit and it was time to head back down, you were really getting chased by thunderstorms, right? They were rolling yeah. in. After we, by the time we summited, um, you know, it was still morning. It was probably 930 in the morning when we summited. The clouds were starting to build. We knew in the forecast there was a chance of, of storms rolling in. By the time we got down off the summit and kind of back to the main corridor to climb down to camp, uh, the storms were rolling in. It was thundering, dark clouds. So it was like, okay, time to get down this mountain. Uh, it's getting a little bit dangerous with this storm. You know, we don't want to be here on the top of the mountain holding a metal ice axe. <laughs> uh in a in a lightning storm so yeah there was some pressure to get down quickly can you guess about how many climbers summited that day oh gosh i don't know that's a good question there was a lot um i mean i would say Towards the top, I bet there was 50 people that summited that day, maybe a little less. Oh. There was a lot of people. Yeah, there were some some groups. You had a few individuals who were doing it by themselves, and you had some groups. I would say anywhere between 20 to 50. On It was a Saturday, so that's a busy day. I don't think it's like that every day. 
by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but yeah, that was like a prime climbing day. The weather was overall really good and mild for the most part, except for when the storms rolled in. So I would say there was a fair number of climbers. There's definitely other people out there uh, summiting when we were. So in your group, uh, and I know it was your first time on Shasta, how many people was that it was it their first time to reach the summit? Everyone. Heather the only one? Yeah, Heather's the only one one that had done Shasta. So Shasta was a new mountain for all of us in that trip, um, which was great. Yeah, great experience. That's awesome. Um, Can you tell the uh, audience, why in the world would someone climb a mountain? Why would they want to do that? Well, some people don't like it. I, you know me, I love <laughs> mountains. I love, I just, I love mountains. Uh, I love to run on mountains. I love to hike on mountains. Uh, and I love to climb. Mountaineering is something I've always wanted to get into. Most people don't know this, but in 2019, I actually booked my first guided mountaineering trip in the Cascades to learn um, to do some glacier climbing and things. I'd booked it for spring or summer of 2020. Ha ha ha. We all know what happened early in 2020 and everything got canceled. So of course my trip got canceled. Um, yeah. So I've been trying for years to kind of like break into mountaineering because I just, I love, I love mountains. I love all kinds of mountains. Uh, you know, and here being in the East, our mountains are way different than the ones out West and I love them both. Uh, and so it was just for me, I just love being in the mountains. And it was something I always wanted to do was to, to learn more mountaineering skills and to be able to, to summit peaks that I couldn't do just by running or hiking them. Um, so for me, it was like this long, you know, years of wanting to do something and then finally making it come true uh, was just great. Awesome. So I want to hear a little bit about just travel stuff. So. Okay. You know, you went there, you went there to climb a mountain, but you had other fun and you, you're, you're on a, a, a mini vacation, right? Yeah. So, it was like a little all, Lauren vacation. Yeah. Lauren vacation. So what all kind of stuff did you get to do? Well, I mean, the mountain was the main thing. Uh, I flew my, my friend Heather, who, who was our guide, um, lives in California. She lives in San Jose. So I flew to San Jose and stayed with her for a little bit. Um, yeah, and so like uh, we we drove to Shasta together, which was fun with our group. Um, and then after the climb, you right like what better way to celebrate? We went to a vineyard and did a wine tasting. It was super fun. Um, way to end the trip. Uh, I'd never been to wine country, so I got a little taste of it. And uh, yeah, it's really neat. Liked it. Um, can you share with us a few cool things about Heather? There's a couple things I like that I'll say if you don't say them. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, Heather, she's an, an extraordinary mountaineer. She's been mountaineering her entire adult life. She has summited all the major peaks around the world, you know, from Antarctica to Africa to Asia to everywhere. Um, yeah, no, but she's just, she's a great, um, a great role model. She's really big on empowering women and young girls. I know she, she volunteers with the Girl Scouts to teach them survival skills. Uh, but she's really big on empowering women and mountaineering and other endurance sports. Um, 
she also likes to do long bike treks and uh, things like that. Obviously, she was on Naked and Afraid with me um, and did a spectacular job, which if they ever air the episode, you'll see. Um, so, yeah, she's just kind of all around amazing human. She's an artist, a writer, and she's a hairdresser. And so she's like all of these things that almost seem contradictory because she has so many things she's good at. Um, so, yeah, she's a super cool person. Yeah, so you brought up one thing that I forgot, but I'll, I'll mention it now. So I know that she was going to bike from Canada to Mexico. She's doing that, that soon. Like, that's a long, a long way. <laughs> Yeah, she's biked across country too. When she moved west, she actually biked all the way from east to west. And so now she's doing Canada to Mexico very soon. Yeah. So you remember, um, I'm getting off subject, but a uh, few months ago, do you remember when I told you I bought my Forrest Gump bicycle? You remember me saying that? So I, I bought a bike that belonged to a guy that rode cross country several times. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Okay, yeah. Okay, the, the little teeth on the chain sprockets are like wore down to nubs. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely wore out. That's this funny. man has put, it's <laughs> got to be 10, 15,000 miles on his bike just That's cross country. Crazy. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like, it's like a museum relic to me. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Um, no, but she's got a incredible garden. And, yeah, she does. Uh, and what it, does she teach people how to garden or just she just does it as a I'm not crazy sure. hobby? I know she does it as a hobby. She likes to grow food and things. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if she teaches others. Okay, well, then the other thing that I was really, because uh, I'm kind of a nerd, um, there was like studio makeup type stuff. Uh-huh. And where, where she does like this, is it movie style or theater style makeup? Yeah, so like she zomb actually zombie stuff and all this other stuff. Yeah, in studio, yeah. and uh, she also does, like, makeup artistry, and she designs, like, almost, like, um, movie set kind of, um, I don't know what you call it, like, uh, words are escaping me, uh, but yeah, she, she kind of uh, has all of this creative outlet in making um, cosmetic things that you would see in movies and things, yeah, it's really cool. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully I hope to do a lot more mountaineering with Heather in the future. That's the goal. Um, I hope probably going to go back to Shasta next year and try a different route and do more of a glaciated route. Um, we've kind of talked and I know you and I have talked, we talked about this going maybe to Kilimanjaro in Africa yep. is, is kind of like the next step, like bigger mountain. Uh, so we've been tossing that idea around. Yeah. So fun but stuff. I but I, I need Shasta first. Yeah, yeah, you got to get started. Yeah, you just got to learn those skills. Um, I'm hoping to do like one big mountaineering trip per year. You know, um, obviously being in the East Coast, we have to travel to, get, to do some mountaineering. So it makes it a little tougher, um, you know, because you got to plan a trip to go somewhere so you can mountaineer. So it's, it's an ordeal. Um, and so I hope to do like one big mountaineering trip a year. Like my, my ultimate goal is like one big hundred mile race or more a year, like one big endurance race per year, one big mountaineering climb per year, maybe one big bike or adventure race thing per year. I kind of want to like start really diversifying <laughs> my endurance pursuits because it's just fun. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I love running. I'll still run every day. I'll still sign up for races. Obviously I coach running. I mean, I love running. Uh, that's not going to change, but I do, I enjoy adding in more things kind of to the, you know, rotation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I may have already asked you this question personally, but we're yeah. going to ask it on the air. <laughs> so did you see any evidence of Bigfoot or the Yeti or anything like that? Oh, I was so bummed. And you know, it's funny, we were talking about in mountaineering, especially in the night, you're so yeah. focused on your steps. Like you're watching the steps of the person in front of you and you're watching your steps. So it's like, you know, every step you're, you're trying to get your um, crampons in, you're trying to get your footing right. So you don't fall and die. Right. And so you're so focused on looking down at each step is intentional that like there could be a Yeti and you would totally miss it. Like he could be sitting there waving and passing out snow cones, but you're like so focused on not dying. <laughs> You don't even see so, them. you know that the Yeti only has one kind of snow cone, and it's they're yellow. Oh, it's lemon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we were kind of joking about like, yeah, the Yeti was probably there, but we were so like, you know, focused on what we were doing. So yeah, I was kind of sad, you know, going to Shasta. It's such a mystical place, and if if anyone's interested, just Google like Mount Shasta and the mythology and stuff. Uh, there's so much, there's podcasts on it. There's books written on it. Um, it's so fun to kind of listen to that. And I was really hoping for something crazy to happen. You know, there's UFO sightings, the reptilian people that live in the middle of Shasta, the Yeti and all these things. Uh, no, sadly, I had a wonderful time on Shasta, but nothing like, um, paranormal happened. So I don't know. <laughs> I bummed about that that, that didn't fall into a wormhole nothing you know exciting that, yeah like a, a time time warp or something yeah like, that. like nothing weird like that um but yeah if anyone's interested google it uh there's some interesting stories and, and things there's some videos on youtube uh it's it's just fun um but yeah it was neat to be on that mountain um loved it love that mountain I've done 14ers before. This one was different than the ones in Colorado, obviously. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, ones in Colorado, for the most part, you can just hike up. Uh, you don't need specialized gear most of the time if you go in the summer. You know, there's still snow. But, yeah, you know, you don't you don't need a lot for most of those peaks. Um, and so this one was totally different experience. It was a great, like, teaching mountain to learn skills on. So it was a great mountain kind of as an introduction to true mountaineering um yeah it was great loved it loved every minute of it so that sounds really awesome and mm -hmm. you don't have to have any special permits or anything to climb it or what do you do you, do, you have to get a permit um you, yeah. you have to to get a permit to to summit um but it's you get it at a gear shop in shasta the little city um but yeah you do you do have to get a, a permit yeah it's it's mostly just for safety precautions so they have yeah they want to know who's on the mountain if someone goes missing or you know yeah 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 and it, it may not it may not necessarily be so they can rescue someone it's mostly just so they can write your name in a book <laughs> yeah you know it's just to kind of keep tabs <laughs> on like numbers but yeah i yeah. mean they have a lot of rescues each yeah. on that mountain they do um you know, they've had quite a few accidents, depending on the season and the weather, you know, all plays a role in that. Um, I think our weekend, I, you know, 
I didn't see anybody get hurt, didn't hear about any rescues. I saw quite a few people turn around after they left camp and they got going on the really hard part. Uh, a lot of groups turn, that's when they kind of turn around. Some people turn around at camp and go back. Uh, so saw lots of that, but luckily no mishaps. Uh, I think the weekend we were there. So that was good. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Another great endurance, you know, my endurance paid off. I mean, I, I will tell you when I summited summit day, you know, being at 14,000 feet and being exerted, I felt great. Like I really felt good. Um, and I, I would like to attribute that to all my training. You know, I think there really mm -hmm. is something about being in really great shape that just makes it easier to be at altitude. I think most people, if you're looking to run a race that has some altitude, you know, your altitude, if you're looking to do a mountaineering trip, climb a 14er, uh, getting in the best shape you can is the most important factor. Making sure your iron's not low. That's another one. Iron obviously helps transport oxygen in your blood. So if you're anemic, it could also cause problems. So there's just these little things that uh, can really help you out if you can't live at altitude and train at altitude. Mm -hmm. um, you can still feel it perform okay at altitude, you know, um, if, if you take your time and get really fit and, and focus on, you know, just being as healthy and fit as possible. Yeah. And so, uh, you were probably the, uh, daintiest of stature <laughs> of all of the women in your group, right? Okay. That's an interesting petite, way to say it. Petite, I I don't shortest, know. Yes. I was the shortest. <laughs> and the most petite. Yeah, probably right? so. Yeah. And, and your pack probably weighed more than everyone else's, right? I don't know. I think we ended up all pretty close, roughly. Yeah, probably pretty close. But percentage of body mass, your your backpack is like 50% of your body. I mean, you're yeah, carrying something. I, only weigh, I weigh like 113 pounds and my pack was right over 30. So it's a big percentage of my body weight, yeah. Yeah, I trained wow. with heavier weight. Like I trained with 40 and 40 plus pounds mm -hmm. specifically so it would feel lighter on the mountain. And it did. My pack did not bother me at all. Even at altitude, uh, I felt great. I had that one moment of nausea at camp. But other than that, I felt great. The no headaches, nothing. Like I really am pleased with, you know, I'm kind of in endurance mode. I'm training for a hundred miler right now. And, you know, I came off that adventure race we just did. Um so I've been biking, I've been running, I've been rucking a lot and hiking. So I really, um, I feel like I'm in great shape and that really probably played the biggest role. And, and of course I trained to carry that heavy load. Um, I think a lot of people just say, oh, it's fine. You know, I'll just pick up a heavy pack, but there is so much to be said for training with a heavy load so that by the time you get to the day when you have to carry a heavy load, it's like second nature, your body's already adapted to that load um i and, think that's so important and you spent a lot of training time uh suffering doing stuff that made you feel bad yeah, so when, yeah. You, when you get into an environment where you start to feel bad it's like okay it's just another day just another you know? day yeah i mean like <laughs> it's hard to run 100 miles and not have some moments where you feel really really bad yeah it's true you know it's just to kind of be expected like if you run 100 miles you're probably going to feel bad for some of it. 
if you climb a mountain, you might feel so bad for some of it. I think it just kind of yeah. goes with endurance um, and it's getting through those and feeling good again, you know? Um, yeah, just, it's just part of it. Mm. For sure. Yep. Yeah. Any, any specific piece of gear that you could have used that you didn't have? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I think, oh, I think, so I brought along my little video recorder that I had for our adventure race. It's like a knockoff GoPro. And yeah. in my head, I anticipated pulling that sucker out and taking all the videos. But I realized that like in mountaineering, you really need your feet and hands. Like you just, like you're on a side of a mountain. And mm -hmm. so I wish I had mounted my camera and I have a, a mount. I wish I'd mounted it on my helmet. So that I could just turn it on okay. and off. Uh, I know that sounds silly, but I would have loved to have like footage. Like we glissaded down and some of the other girls got footage, um, which was really fun. But I'm like, oh, I should have put my video on my helmet and then I could just record everything. It would have been such a cool perspective. Um, so yeah, next time. But otherwise gear, I was really well prepared. Uh, Heather being the expert and, you know, doing this so much of her life. I mean, she goes on mountain climbs that take months. And so she's lived this life. So she knows what you need. Uh, so, you know, I feel like gear wise, I had everything I needed. Everything was perfect. Every, you know, the gear I had so then, was great. So one of the things I like to do is plan for the exact thing that I'm going to be doing. Yeah. And so I don't want to have too much. Yeah. And I, I want to, so like, whatever length of a trail run is going to be, I don't want to have three liters of water. I want to yeah. have like one liter or two yeah. liters, whatever's required for that distance. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I don't want to carry extra 20 pounds. I don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. So she gave you the most efficient loadout. Mm -hmm. that. You... Yeah. So yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, and you know, the first time you do anything, whether it's running a hundred miles, climbing a mountain, adventure race, the first time you do anything, if you're unsure and you've not been in that specific situation, you tend to overpack because you're like, well, what if I need this? Or what if I get in there? You know, it's the unknown that makes you overpack usually. And so Heather was great about reeling that in for us and kind of be like, this is this is like what you'll need. Um, because otherwise it would have been so easy to overpack. You know, you think about sleeping in the snow. Oh, I'm going to take all these layers. I'm going to take all this. But real in reality, you know, you only need so much. Um, and so having someone be like, look, this is what you're going to need. This and this alone. It was so helpful because in those unknown, you know, situations, you just really do tend to like err on the side of the more, the better. <laughs> I want to mm -hmm. have it not, you know, instead of not having something I might need. Um, so it was really helpful for this trip. I mean, I think that just goes to show like, you know, why do people hire coaches for running a hundred miles? It's just having that expertise, having someone say, this is what you need. This is what you're going to feel. This is what you're going to need. This is what you need to do. Having someone that's been in that experience time and time again um, is just so helpful in these situations because it, it really helps streamline things for you when you're unsure. Yeah. And when y'all made your base camp and then you left to summit, did you leave behind some of the stuff that you yeah. did, like pots and pans and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah. So we were able to lighten our load 
uh, for summit day, you just leave the non-essentials at camp. So we left the tents up, sleeping bags, cooking utensils, all that heavy stuff got to stay at camp. Uh, and so for the summit day, your bag was way lighter, which made it uh, so much easier. Um, so that's the great part of having kind of like a, a overnight stay in the middle of your mountaineering trip. You know, if you're doing a gigantic mountain like Denali or something, obviously this is like a weeks long process with lots of camping. But for this, so Shasta, theoretically, you could do it in one day. People do it in one day. However, it is really great to break it up. Uh, for us, I think it was essential because we had skills to learn. We want to take our time. Uh, but the other benefit is if you camp, you get to leave all of your heavy shit and extra shit at camp. Yeah. And you can come back and eat lunch after you summit. Like you don't have to carry extra food on you all the way to the summit. Um, you know, you just have to need some water and a few snacks, whatever to get you through. Um, so that's a real big advantage. You can just, you can drop gear at camp and it's waiting for you halfway down the mountain again. That's awesome. Yeah. And so I, I kind of feel like the way you've described this, uh, mountaineering adventure to me, it checked all the boxes that it needed to. So it wasn't just, um, this outrageous thing. It was safe enough. It was also planned. It also had elements of danger or elements of excitement. Mm -hmm. And so it, it checkmarked all those boxes. Yeah, um, yeah. How, how long does the euphoria from something like this last? I mean, I still am feeling like, oh, that was amazing. Um, like, I am still looking at my pictures going, oh, I missed it. That was so great. Yeah, I mean, I still like I'm feel I feel like I'm still uh, riding high on it. Like, just like, wow, I can't believe I did that. And when's the next one? So, yeah, I, I think for me, it was such a long uh, journey in the making because I've been wanting to do this for so long. So it was really a big deal for me to be able to summit. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still very super, like, excited about it. <laughs> so, like, all those times, I remember when you were, like, rucking and stuff. Yeah. You're just carrying heavy damn weights all yeah. over. The yeah. That's that's what it's for. And it, yeah. it pays off. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, with my, what I did is I, how I trained, I'll just give y'all a snapshot. I bought my backpacking pack that I wanted to carry specifically for mountaineering. And I started rucking with it. I have other bags I ruck with, but I wanted it to be the pack I was going to carry up Shasta. So I just put weights in it and, you know, progressively overloaded it. Um, and not only was I hiking, but I was doing hill repeats with it. So hiking up, hiking down, big, long, steep hill repeats. But after that, I would come in and I would do uh, a strength workout while wearing that weighted pack. So, you know, I was bending over, doing squats, doing good mornings, deadlifts, step ups, everything with that pack on. So that in all planes of motion, in all combinations of muscles and movement patterns, I was wearing that heavy pack because I knew on the mountain I'd over i'd be reaching i'd be and so yeah. for me i just wanted to feel like that heavy pack was like a part of me and my body to be acclimated to that and it worked it worked amazingly well i felt great i wasn't even sore after the mountaineering trip yeah. the only thing i was sore from glissading <laughs> yeah you're you're bringing up something that's important you remember like a couple years ago um when we first were getting into rucking and stuff and we had like way heavy stuff yeah and 
we would lean over or try and climb up on a boat and we were falling everywhere. Yeah, you just topple it, over. Yeah. It it changes your your center of balance. Yeah. And it makes it so weird. You have to learn how to how to reequilibrate your your equilibrium to right. wearing something. Right. Yeah. That's exactly why I did strength training in it. And I, I spent time like, you know, making sure because I didn't want to be on the mountain and feel unstable. My body yeah. feels the nerve mass was messed up. I had a great pack. My pack fit me well. I will say I have to get a different pack because I'm so small. I have a short torso. The women's, the smallest women's pack is still too big. So where the pack comes up and if I wear a helmet, I can't look up. And so like on this trip, even when they were like, rock, rock, you know, you're supposed to like look for it and then dodge it. I couldn't do that. So I just had a deck and cover because the pack, the internal frame comes up so high and then you put a helmet on. And so they had tried to convince me at the outdoor store to buy a kid size pack. <laughs> but I was just like, I can't do it. So I got the smallest women's pack and it still is a little bit too big in terms of the internal frame coming up past my head. So that was an issue on this trip. Um, otherwise, I love the bag. I think it's a great backpacking bag. I can use it. However, I think before my next mountaineering trip, I'll have to seriously consider either getting like a, a custom made pack or, you know, shrinking down to the kids. They make, you know, there, there's outdoor brands um, that make uh, kid sizes that are just the same quality and same leaders as, as the others. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't move my head back. Um, so yeah, that was the only issue I had. And I, I kind of knew that going in, you know, I tried my pack on with my helmet and knew it was going to be an issue, um, but it was okay for this trip. So. That's, that's really funny. <laughs> yeah. They need to make better fitting gear for women. I mean, I know we've come a long ways, uh, but even the women's packs, it's hard for me to get fitted in. Um, and so yeah, like if they could just, you know, diversify that a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. I know there are companies that make custom design packs. They measure you and do all that. There's actually one here in Nashville um, that I've looked into. So that could be a possibility in the future. We'll see. So if anybody has cool. a good custom pack, you know, company, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Now your your gear and stuff when you flew and traveled to check it because it's like sharp objects and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, you can't fly with an ice axe, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, so you know, and I had my trekking poles, ice axe, um, all you know, I just I checked a bag for all of that and just crossed my fingers that it, you know you're always a little nervous. I like to do carry on for most important gear, but uh, this time I just had to trust that it was going to get there. Um, yeah, mountaineering gear. It, you just gotta, you gotta check it. You know, I know some yeah, and, people get away with trekking poles as carry on, but I've heard horror stories where they, they confiscate them. So it's, it, to me, it's not worth risking. Yeah. And I would have expected, cause you were, you were at a place where they sell lots of gear. Yeah. Um, even though you don't want to have to buy stuff or rent more than you have to, yeah. don't ever let your adventure fail because they lost your bag. Yeah. You know? You, yeah. you have to rent everything from scratch, and that's yeah. what you got to do. Yeah, and if anybody's interested in climbing Shasta and doesn't want to invest, the there's a gear uh, 
rental place there in Shasta. There's an outdoor store and they rent virtually everything. You could rent, you know, even like jackets and backpack. I mean, they, you pretty much can get the whole deal. Um, so if somebody's thinking of trying out mountaineering, you definitely, uh, mm -hmm. a, a lot of places have whole setups. Like you can get the whole package um, of just basically all the gear you need. If you're especially you're like us, we don't have a ton of really good winter gear because we don't live in a place that gets huge amounts of snow. Um, and so, you know, we have some snow gear living here, but not like if we lived in a very mountainous, snowy region. Um, and so sometimes it is better just to rent if it's not something you're going to do all the time, something you want to try out. There are places uh, that you can rent gear from. So and I my my rental gear was just fine. I didn't have any issues with it. So. That's awesome. Yeah. And then uh, you did have a few blisters, right? I have one giant blister on the back of my heel and it hurts so bad. I'm still running with it. I know I should probably let it rest, but I just wrap it up and then grit my teeth. <laughs> um, yeah, I knew, you know, the boots, I have freakishly narrow feet. So the boots I rented, I knew, you know, I just wore my thickest socks. Um, but I think that final push to the summit, it just wore a blister uh and so i kind of yeah i escaped with one blister not too bad it'll heal uh very painful <laughs> i'm i'm not a blister person i hardly ever get blisters so i'm just not accustomed to it well it's also those are rental shoes i mean they're not yeah they're not my normal shoes they're they're these stiff boots i figured i'm surprised i only have a blister on one heel the other heel is totally fine uh yeah so i mean that's just to be expected i think most of us ended up with some blisters like that so and then you think like athletic tape could have helped that or prevented it? Yeah, I think next time I'm out near, I'll tape up the back of my ankles just as a preventative. Uh, I've never had to do that for running, luckily. Uh, even like 100 miles, I don't, you know, I may get a blister on the side of my toe or something. Um, but typically, I'm unscathed. So, yeah, I think next time I, I do something like this, I will definitely uh, prepare the back of my heels a little better. So. Awesome yeah anything else that you want to particularly share about this trip no i just you know for people who are interested in mountaineering um i think it's a good overlap with ultra running so like if you're an ultra runner uh you don't have to go crazy with your training to also enjoy mountaineering i know a lot of people are like oh you know i don't want to do anything that interferes with running and you know there's all this talk about different sports and things. Um, but I really feel like mountaineering lends itself well to kind of being a, a sport that you can do along with ultra running for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. My dog That's is pretty much, Oh, your dog in there too. I saw him. He wanted to join in on the conversation. Okay. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good. Um, that, so what I was saying is that pretty much covers all the, the stuff that I had planned. Okay. And uh, uh, what do you have coming up in the future, near future? All right. Hold on. Let me get this dog off the computer. <laughs> um, he, he's on he's on your lap yeah, now. He's like, he's like, pay attention to me now. Um, so coming up, let's see. I have a solo adventure race on your birthday, actually. That's right. <laughs> happy birthday to you. 
Uh, yeah, so it's a local race up here. It's a new one, uh, and it's, it's just a 12-hour one, so much better than 48 hours. <laughs> yeah. First one. Um, and so that's coming up in August. And then the other big thing I have is No Business 100, which I know Bud is going to be helping me out for. And I'm training hard. I know. I'm so excited. So it's going to be fun. So, yeah, that's really – those are the two big things I have. What, what do you got, Bud? Uh, as far as stuff coming up, yeah, I think the the only real athletic thing I have is pacing you on no business. That's the next big one. Yeah, but of course, uh, in my training, uh, tomorrow's a a ten miler, um, and I'm gonna do some kayak fishing. Nice. Uh, this morning, of course, I swam a thousand yards, ran a five k on the treadmill. Oh, that's right. And, uh, you did. You got up early and did your workout. Yeah. But tomorrow's um, the humidity, but I'll, I'll, I'm going to go super early. So yeah. it, it won't be that bad. Yeah, I plan on getting up really early. Although I will say that I got up really early to run this morning and it was only like 70 Still something. Bad. <laughs> the humidity was like 86%. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Uh -huh. It was so bad. Yeah, tomorrow, we're, those who don't know, we're under a heat advisory here. Like the, I think tomorrow hmm. it's going to feel like 115 with like 90. Are you serious? Oh mm -hmm. my God. Yeah. And like 90% humidity. So if anybody is wondering, that's just like, just disgusting, you know? <laughs> so I am getting up early to run, but it's just going to be a nice slow, like run around my hood. Uh, Cause I'm kind of, uh, I got one kid at Boy Scout camp and I got two kids home with me. So I'm just going to get up early around my neighborhood and do the, the high heat and humidity run before the worst of it uh, kicks in. So yeah, not, not super fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you'll be on the water. You could just jump in tomorrow. If you, if you're kayak fishing, you can just jump in. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm probably going to be like underneath the overpass, yeah. just blocking the sun from hitting me yeah. and just hanging out right there in one little spot, maybe. Yeah, I was thinking and about that like, today. I was like, man, I wish I was in Chattanooga. I'd be going doing some runs and then jumping in the waterfalls afterwards <laughs> like we used to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Every, everyone everyone talks big, bad, like, oh, I'm going to jump in the creek naked or something. And it's so hot. You get to the creek, you can barely put your toe in there. And so <laughs> it, even though the, the water is like 80 degrees, it, yeah. it's so much colder than the surrounding area. You're just like, it feels ice cold. You oh, know? you know, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that today on my run. I was like, oh, I wish I had a nice cold creek to jump into. But maybe soon, hopefully soon. I'll be down Chattanooga and get a nice big run done, hopefully. Yep. We'll see. But yeah, summer. Summer is here. All of a sudden, it hit hard. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll do some mountain bike clinics and stuff. That's yes. the only thing coming up. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That's right. Bud's going to lead us in a little uh, bike maintenance and bike repair workshop soon. Uh, oh, yeah, we'll do that one, too. And then there's, yeah. like, a mountain bike skill workshop or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. I just had uh, showed you that. I think I invited yeah. you to that on Facebook. There's, like, a mountain bike clinic or something. Yeah, I really mm -hmm. want to do that. I got to make sure that I'm going to be around on that date. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, fun stuff. I got to get better on the mountain bike, you guys. That's my that's my uh, Achilles right there is the, the mountain <laughs> bike. So, yep, got to do that. Mm -hmm. 
That's my dog. My dog is like, are you done talking to the computer? <laughs> Love. oh yeah we talked about eleanor a little bit and maybe Haunted bike. yeah maybe the audience knows a little bit about eleanor i don't remember but So I think we talked about Eleanor. She's the bike that like just randomly throws pedals and, and things off uh, as we're riding. And you got rid of her, right? well not I, I let a guy borrow her Okay. I warned him. I was like, listen, you know, she's got a temper and all this other stuff. And uh, he took her out on the first ride and she threw him and, uh, you know, totally, he totally crashed. And I don't think it was it. I don't think it was his fault. She's evil. I think, I think she turned the handlebars on him on purpose, you know. Listen, that bike, it needs to either have an exorcism or just throw it off the mountain, like take it to the top and just, just throw it off the mountain bed and then maybe even light it on fire, you know, The next, just be safe. no, the, the next day it'll be <laughs> back. yeah, it'll be back like in your garage, like, hi, bud, did you miss me? Yeah, I mean, that thing is, that thing is evil. It's possessed or something like they could make a movie about it. yeah she'll be it's like christina the um that car Yeah. from you remember that one <laughs> Yeah, I'm telling you, they can make a horror movie about the haunted bike. She's evil. No, that's, a, that's, I mean, that's crazy. Like that bike does crazy things. Yeah. I think it's best just to get rid of it. Just give it away. to. <laughs> Here, this is free. Just take Great, it. just take it. Take it far away. Yeah. No. I've got to get back on my bike. Yeah. Bud had a little clinic for me where I got to learn how to do all the stuff. Uh, so like for my solo adventure race coming up, I need to be able You did to, it all. yeah. You did it all on your own. It was, Yeah. it was, You got to be in the field. You got to be able yeah. to change those tires, do whatever's needed. Um, you know, if you're in the middle of, of a race by yourself. Uh, so yeah, so I feel way, way, way more confident with my bike and being able to kind of fix things in a bind. Um, so yeah, so that's why we're going to host a little clinic up here in Nashville that Bud so graciously agreed to coach. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about that. And it's, it's kind of a small capacity class. Yeah, just a few people. I've opened it up to clients and friends. Um, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. So, I'm excited. so it's, it's the first one. So I mean, maybe there's going to be more, Yeah, hopefully. but you can't have like 20 people. You can No. only do like five or six, you know? Yeah, small group, little setting, uh, totally laid back. Nobody can, you know, nobody feel intimidated. It's just, you know, because you know me, I knew nothing. Like I was like, oh, you have to tell me everything. Uh, you know, so yeah, it's going to be a, a laid back, non-intimidating little clinic. Um, so hopefully we'll get a good turnout. Um, I think there's several women interested already. Uh, we just got to nail down the date for that. Yeah. So hopefully more. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Something Yep, new. learn your bike skills wrong the way that I learned them. <laughs> That's going to teach us all <laughs> the, the stuff not to do. So. all right. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to teach you how I do it. I don't yeah. know or show you how I do it. It works. Yeah, I'm excited for this solo adventure race. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, but I do feel way more confident now. Uh, if something goes wrong with my bike, at least now I have a fighting chance <laughs> to get it going again. Um, so I'm, I'm totally stoked. Yeah. So I feel like that last adventure race, something did go wrong with your bike. You And made it though. 
I it know. was a miracle that it held together. Yeah, my my tire tread was actually ripped through. Um, and I don't know how we finished, but the next day it was flat. And it really should have gone flat during the race. So I don't know. It was just like perfect timing. Like it just I, gave out. At well, the end. it's bike karma is what it is. Yeah, for some reason, I got good bike karma. You know, I don't know. Well, you know, I, I think that we kind of earned it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I mean, talking about giving away bikes, I gave a kid a bike. Oh, and, yeah, that's right. And then it seemed like that was a blessing for that. You know? Yeah, so you gave us good karma, bud. Good karma. We, we used it all up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now it's all in us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, I'm totally excited. I mean, this adventure race coming up, again, it's just like a learning experience. I'm going to be solo, but it's on terrain I'm familiar with. It's a here where I live. Uh, and so it'll be exciting just to see what happens. I mean, who knows? Who cares how it really ends up? I'm just excited to go out and try. Well, well now that you know more about adventure racing, you can, like, find the checkpoints on the map and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it, it'll be fun to see how it goes. I'm I'm very excited. Um, yeah, we'll see. So I this is like the year of trying new things, you know, like mountaineering, adventure racing. Obviously, I still love ultra running. That's not going to change. Um, but it sure is fun to have some other things too that kind of overlap with ultra running and go hand in hand with it. <clears throat> um, it's been super great. I've just loved it. So, yeah. Yep. Awesome. that's awesome all right bud any other questions before we wrap it up uh no i was just gonna make a comment on something you said like okay. it was this is like from the triathlon world they always say like why suck at one sport when you can suck at three that's right so. you know like i feel <laughs> like i'm totally at the place in my life where i'm sucking at so many different uh sports and it's great <laughs> <laughs> everything like who needs to be an expert when you can be mediocre at everything and that's that's kind of my goal like just barely enough <laughs> at everything so that i can do lots of different things uh yeah that's kind of the goal <laughs> <laughs> living the dream man all right thank you for the interview tonight yeah and i hope everyone enjoys it yeah thanks bud all right good night all right bye bye bye